Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning on this Sunday before Christmas. Many of our folks are traveling today, and we're glad that they could be with loved ones. Many of you are leaving soon, and we're pray journey of mercies on you. We'll be sticking tight to Lynchburg and enjoying our family here. If you have little ones through grade three and you want them to be in junior church, they can be dismissed at this time. And for the rest of you, if you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to set aside temporarily our study out of 2 Corinthians 6 and reflect on the birth of Christ out of John 1. I'd like you to turn there, John chapter 1. In 1865, at the age of 29, English writer William Chatterton Dix was struck with a sudden near-fatal illness, confined to bed rest for several months, and during which time he wrote many hymns, including the one that Amy just played just a minute ago, What Child Is This? The words, I'm sure, are very familiar to you. This time of year, it goes like this. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste to bring him laud the babe, the son of Mary. Why lie he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners here the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh, come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby, joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. And the question that is asked in the very first verse is the question that is answered as we draw our attention to the first chapter of the Gospel of John for our message uh, this Sunday before Christmas. There are many Many ways to view Christmas, of course, and you, depending on your stage of life, you perhaps relate to some of them. I was thinking about some of those ways. If you have small children, you're aware that they see Christmas as bright lights and trees and, and Santa and, and sort of an exciting, magical time of fun and anticipation like no other time of the year, a time to receive gifts and anticipation of what will happen and where they will come uh, and what will come. If you have teenagers, you're aware that they may look at Christmas as, as a time to be with friends and go to parties and be out of school and maybe get a few things in their wardrobe or something electronic or something like that. If you are an adult, you may see Christmas as a time with family and friends, a time perhaps of travel and, and closely watched checking accounts and hopefully not overcharged credit cards and uh, dealing with shopping and hiding things and remembering relatives without insulting anyone and all of that. And And then businesses, of course, see Christmas as a time to to get into the black, to deplete the uh, inventory and, and bring the profits up. And there are lots of different viewpoints uh, of Christmas. And then there are the most, uh, we are most familiar, of course, with Christmas as viewed from Matthew and Luke, for they give us some historical background, and, and they tell us about the shepherds and the angels and Mary and Joseph, and most songs are written about those kinds of things. And, um, 
and Bethlehem and hillsides and mangers and the child and angels. And we've looked at those things very closely over the last several years. We spent much time in Matthew and in Luke really breaking those passages down, finding out the historical relevance, relevance of all of that, how do they identify the baby and all of those things. But in one of the most important and certainly the unique accounts of Christmas is really found in John chapter 1. John presents to us the story of Christmas without mentioning Bethlehem or Joseph, without mentioning an inn or mangers or shepherds or angels or any of those things. But really, this is the story behind the story. If you want to know why all those things were true, uh, you have to know this story because this story couldn't be seen if you were just on a hillside and you heard the angels with their proclamation. And uh, this is the story that you couldn't know if you stood in the manger and you looked at the child and his father and mother, unless, of course, you read Isaiah 9, which Jason read to us earlier, and you kind of put all together the humble uh, abode and all of that, and you might start putting all that together in your mind. But this is a really rich and really unique in all the New Testament uh, story of Christmas. It's the reality of Christmas not seen historically, but theologically. And, and it answers the question of Chatterson Dix's hymn, What Child Is This?, and, and in order to do that, John takes us into eternity past. And so we leave time, and we go out of the world for a while. Uh, but if we understand that the angel's appearance and the star and the celebration and the wonder, then it's, it is a perspective that we must have if we're to understand Christmas at all. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 1. I'd like somebody, if they would, turn the lights on so you can see uh, in your copy of God's Word. Uh, first 18 verses is where we're going to read uh, John chapter 1. I read just a portion of the passage uh, earlier this uh, this morning when we were coming into the Song Emmanuel, but it is one of my favorite passages to read, to ponder on, and so I hope it's encouraging to you as well. John chapter 1, we'll read through verse 18. We obviously won't get that far today, but we'll read those verses nonetheless. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Verse 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them... He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified about him, cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me, verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were 
realized through Jesus Christ, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And as we look at that passage that's before us, I'd like to say that this passage in terms of vocabulary is one of the simplest anywhere in the Bible. If you just think about that passage, it really is very simple, and yet it puts on display the most profound truth in all the universe. The words are words that a third grader can understand, and, and yet all the brilliant intelligence of all the world can exhaust all that implication there in those passages. In fact, I think that a third grader probably does better with the passage than an adult because it has to be received by faith, and children do that much better than adults do. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, uh, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The reason that John wrote this was really to present Christ as God's son, God in human body. He wanted to present God in a human body in order that you and I might believe in him. So the purpose of John's gospel is the presentation of the deity of Jesus. And then when he makes that presentation, some men believe it, some men ignore it. And really what you have in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1 is you really have a summary of the entire book that John is about to go through and expound on all those passages. But we see when we begin the gospel that, that uh, John, with John, that he just opens up heaven and the first thing that is is the eternal Son of God. He is there and he descends. God and man in one blessed, glorious person, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. John's message is, behold God. And, and, and this revelation was written to establish the truth of the divinity and the deity of Christ. So he's absolutely total God, very God living in human body. He's He's not half God and half man. He's total God, total man. And so the genealogy that John presents doesn't name any human beings like Matthew and Luke. And we take care of that in that genealogy. But John doesn't do any of that. Uh, he, he just goes right to the time before time, uh, the time of eternity. And he says that um, he was there when it all began. So he just starts that way. And that's his genealogy. He didn't start, see. He always was. That's why I love this passage. It doesn't go through all the history of the Jewish people and the kings and all of that, and then you have to know something about uh, when they conquered Canaan and, and who, who was in the line and, and all that. It's very wonderful to know. But here, John just skips over all of that. Here's his genealogy. He didn't start. He's always been. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, he says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby... We might be saved. And that's the reason John talks about Jesus. That's the only hope for man. And I'll tell you, you know, 2,000 years since Jesus spoke those words and, and later John wrote them down, you know, the solitary life of Jesus is, is, has profoundly affected human affairs. We've talked about that so much. As you look back through the history of man and you just see what Jesus has done, as well as the, it's the destiny of every soul that's ever entered in the world or will ever enter has affected that destiny. And, and what you do with Jesus determines not only your life here, and now, but your eternal destiny. And so, as John just makes this wonderful proclamation, it just rings with us. You know, history contains that enormous testimony, the, 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 uh, the record of the effect that one life has on all of the world history and on the lives of men and on nations. And so, John's message is Jesus and, and the Son of God and the presentation of his salvation and whether men believe or reject that. That's John's message. So, look back at verse 1, if you would, with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So so I love this. John John backs up beyond the beginning of Genesis 1-1. He 
So when he puts it in reverse and backs up, he goes way past that. See, in Genesis 1, 1, it says, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But listen, John's beginning, John's beginning is a different beginning. So John says, in the very beginning of beginnings, you say, well, you mean there was a time when God began? No. No, but God doesn't know any other words to convey this truth to us. So he just says, in the beginning was the word. From the very beginning of beginnings, if you will, which never began, if you like it that way, Christ was there. He always was. So he never came into existence because he always was. And you may say, well, I don't understand that. And I will tell you that's all right. Neither do I, and neither does anybody else. Back in the beginning of the beginnings, that never was a beginning, Christ was already there. And we have to embrace that by faith, don't we? Because we can't comprehend that, stuck in space and time as we are. In the beginning of beginnings, before beginnings ever began, God was. In the beginning back, before the heavens and the earth were created, the Word already existed. See, From all eternity, the Word existed. And the Word was in the beginning of the beginnings, and the Word was not created. He never began. He always was. And when God set out to create this world, the Word was already there. I don't know how many more ways I can explain that, but I think you get the picture. No matter how many times you try to break that down, it still is just the most marvelous mystery in your mind as you really try to grasp that concept. And the Word, of course, refers to Christ. That's the first way John answers the question, what child is this? So look back in verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John, carried along by the Holy Spirit, refers to Jesus as the Word. Now, the Jew understands that concept, and so does the non-Jew. In the beginning was the Logos. That, now, the Jew understands the concept. That's the Greek word for Word. The Jew understands that concept because the word Word meant something to the Jew. In the Old Testament, the universe was created by the word of God's mouth. Everything that God did, his power, his will, his mind was directed towards men. It always was. It's always been called his word. So don't turn away from the word of God we see over and over in the Old Testament. And the word of God came to Moses or Nehemiah or Joshua or whatever, right? And so we see that over and over. Hebrews uh, chapter 11 verse 3, I think, captures that as well as, as any other place, that Jewish understanding of the word word. Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. That's a Jewish understanding, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. So in that particular passage, the word word is not capitalized because it isn't referring to Jesus. It's referring to the word of God. And that's an important thing to remember because Jews would understand that, that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that when what is seen was not made out of things which were visible. So all that which emanated from God in terms of his power and his will and his mind, and, and that means anything that came from God and, and contacted man was called his word. So, so the Jews are very familiar with that, with that concept, because all through the Old Testament there was this reality of the word. And, and John's writing this gospel, see, and, and he's carried along by the Holy Spirit and, and, and the Jew reads this message and he understands, you know, if you wonder who that word is, look at Jesus. So he connects the word, God's word, with Christ. And all of a sudden the Jews 
who understand this, the light comes on. If you, if you want to see that word, that creative divine reason and mind and will and power of God, you've seen all through the Old Testament era, if you want to see all that power gathered up and put into a body, look at Jesus. That's, that's who he is. Jesus Christ was the embodiment of the Old Testament concept of the word. And so if you want to see the word that brought the universe into existence, if you want to see the word that gives the law of God to men, if you want to see the word that transmitted life and light to the soul, look at Christ. He's the embodiment of all that God is. And in the Old Testament, all the power and the mind and the will of God that came from God was called the word, but that which carries uh, comes from God in the New Testament is his son embodying, embodying that concept, you see. And so just just expands just marvelously as you begin to look at, at what John is carried along to say. And again, Hebrews does a really good job of giving us this Jewish mind on this. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and this illustrates this, I think, in a way that even Hebrews eleven three doesn't, but it illustrates the thought. It says, God, after he spoke, so what's that? His word. So after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So he revealed himself in all kinds of ways through visions, through through his spoken word, through power, through a demonstration of his ability to destroy or create or whatever, see? It, it, he did that all through the Old Testament to the fathers in all kinds of ways. After he spoke, so his word long ago, and he did it in all kinds of ways, that God can speak to us in a very clear manner just by what's been created, right? Isn't that the whole point of Romans chapter 1? I mean, men are without excuse because... Because part of God's attributes are clearly seen, being what having been what's been made, and so uh, God speaks in all different ways. In verse two, though it says, "In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world." So there's the transfer, right? So in the Word of God, who made the world, who was that actually? That was Jesus, and and now because He used to speak in various ways. His word to us in the Old Testament to the fathers, what is he speaking to, to us now through? Through Jesus. Jesus becomes the embodiment of all of the speech and all the talk and all the communication that God did in the Old, in the Old Testament. So the Son of God, Jesus, in the manger embodies all that the Old Testament concept of the word of God ever meant. God's will, God's power, God's mind, God's reason, and all of those things came to earth in a body. So the Jews could understand that. Could Now, the Greeks could understand that word too. Uh, the Greeks were passionate about philosophy, and their philosophy had its problems, of course, mainly the problem put forth in Hebrews or Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, which applies any time men speak for any length of time, where it says, men, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And so uh, the idea there that you begin to expound on things that you only have a very uh, slim grasp about, it's easy to have a transgression. But logos, according to the Greek philosophy, was divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it, giving it form, giving it meaning. And the idea of the logos in Greek, uh, th that thought goes back at least to the 6th century BC philosopher Heraclitus, who came up with the thought that in the universe there seemed to be, he said, a logos that was comparable to the reasoning power of man. So, And then later, Stoic philosophers defined logos as an active, rational, spiritual principle that permeated all reality. So that was their, their understanding of logos. They called the Logos providence, they called it nature, God, the soul of the universe, whatever. Philo of Alexandria then began to make a connection with uh, with the New Testament understanding in the first century. He's a Jewish philosopher. He taught that Logos was the intermediary between God and the cosmos. 
So the agent of creation and the agent through which the human mind can apprehend and comprehend God, that's what Alexander, uh, Philo of Alexandria said. And so the Greeks had an idea of what the word word meant. The Jews understood what the word word meant. And so in the beginning, when John writes, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the Greek can understand this, that the power, this mind, this reason, this floating around there is in a body, Jesus. What you thought was just something out there that you understood kind of lined up a little bit with the reasoning power of man. This is, uh, this thing is Jesus, God in human flesh. He was before the beginning that we know. He was, he was with the true God and he is the true God. And he's saying to the Jews, Jesus is the embodiment of all that God was for you in the Old Testament. And he's saying to the Greeks, Jesus is the answer to which you're, for, for what you're looking for. And, and as John has carried along to write this simple statement, he really is expressing to the world the reality of Jesus. Very simple words, very profound thoughts. Now, look again at John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Now, if you're taking notes, this is one of your first stops. It means to be face to face with God. The most intimate possible relationship of communication and communion and fellowship. So John, in very simple words, says, in the beginning was the Word. Back before the beginning, back when there wasn't a beginning, back before everything began, back before Genesis 1-1, he already existed. And when all creation began, he was already there. He doesn't have a beginning. And then very simply he says, and the Word was with God. That just means he was face-to-face with God in the beginning that never was. So in eternity past, God was face to face with Jesus Christ. That's a tremendous, wonderful reality. But Jesus gave it up, didn't he? John 17, 5, Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. And he says, now, Father, and, and if you think about what John says in John 1, 1, and then in John 17, 5, as he quotes Jesus, you understand more clearly, I think, what Jesus is meaning by the whole thing. He says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So in other words, he says, God, I want it to be like it was before. I, I want that glory that I had when I was face to face with you. And then later in his prayer, he said, oh God, let this cup pass from me. And then he stops and, and his prayer and he says, nevertheless, what? Your will be done, right? That's, that's some kind of love, isn't it? Especially when you think about the fact that we weren't even very lovable. We hated him. So the word was with God, he loved being there, he had infinite fellowship, but he condescended. And, and, and then John takes another step, really describing what child is this. What does he say? Look at John 1, 1, last part. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So very simple words again, third grader can understand them. In fact, does better with it perhaps than adults do. The word was God. Jesus was God. Okay. Nothing less. Jesus Christ is God in a body. Full, mysterious deity of Christ, exemplified in humility and unbelievable condescension. From the very beginning, God, John makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the living word. He alone is the perfect revelation of God. There is no other. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is God in a body. All that God is, is Christ. That's why Jesus says to Philip in John 14, 9, he says this. He says, Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and Yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? Right? In John 10.30, I and the Father are what? One. Wonderful reality. Unbelievable glory. 
But Jesus gave all of that up. And that's why Paul was carried along to say to the Philippian church in two, Philippians 2.6, he says, he, although, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So it was his, by right, by position, his authority, his position, all equal with God. He didn't have to hang on to that. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. And can you imagine the incredulity of the angels when they understood that plan? He's, gonna, he's going to give those things up temporarily, the face-to-face communion with God, and take on the body of a man and live in humility. Paul says that he didn't think it was a thing to hold on to, so he let it go. And he became a man, and he took on a body, and he let people spit on him, and he let people crucify him, and he let people blaspheme him, and he died. Why? Because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave what? And so he let people do all those things. You want to see the magnitude of love? Listen to to this infinite contrast in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had had face-to-face glorious fellowship with God before the beginning of any beginning that we can ever imagine. And on the cross, he had the absolute extreme opposite. See, Now in John 1-2, John just reiterates this simple but profound truth in case someone is saying, you know, this, this child, this carpenter now, this teacher, your statement describes this guy. Very simple statement in John 1-2. He was in the beginning with God. Again, very simple statements a third grader can grasp them. He was in the beginning with God. Just restating the profound reality of verse 1, isn't he? This is the way the Bible does it. It puts these fantastic concepts in very simple words. Even though our minds can't touch them, our faith can grasp them. Can you grasp that? He was in the beginning with God. Can you understand that? It's just so hard to grasp the understanding, true understanding of that. Because we don't understand what the beginning was that wasn't a beginning. But whatever it was, John is very clear, he was in the beginning with God. And even though we can't grasp that, our minds, with our minds, our faith can hold on to it. He was, before any beginning we can conceive of, he was face to face in close fellowship with God. He was with God way back. And then, and by that definition, he is God. And that, John's point is this, he is God. To do anything less is, then accept him as God would be to misunderstand the clear intent of the passage. This is precisely what it's trying to say. And there are religions and there are cults, of course, and there are people who deny that Jesus Christ always was and that he was total God and they blaspheme him and they will say that God, that he's just a, a son of God and just one of the many gods and you, you have people say that to you. But according to the simple reading of John, which cuts that cuts the foundations out from under all of that, he is God from eternity past and there isn't any room for any other understanding. That is what this child is. See, This is precisely what John's trying to get across. He says it and reiterates it in different ways and simply to help us understand it. In fact, John goes on in his letter of 2 John 7, explains that. He says, he says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Uh, so be careful that you don't go down that path and start thinking somehow that Jesus is less than John clearly says that he is. And it has a different position than John clearly declares that he has. So otherwise you end up having some problems and you may 
lose some of the reward you would have had. Anyone who goes too far and does not, ab- and not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have uh, God. The one who abides in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. And, and you know, it, these people come to your house. Mine, they don't come to my house anymore. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses will come to your house, and uh, they desperately want to be classified as Christian, particularly the Mormon cult desperately wants to be classified as Christian. And yet they cannot be classified as Christian because they deny the foundational truth of Jesus and his position. And so everything starts and finishes with the definition of the baby in the manger that John gives us. See, this is the story you couldn't see if you're standing by the manger. It's a story you wouldn't have understood just to be on the hillside. It would have been spectacular to you. However, you don't understand all uh, that's going on if you don't read John 1. And God feels so strongly about that, that the Holy Spirit carries the Apostle Paul along in Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, about those who distort the, that gospel of Christ. In Galatians 1, 6, he says this, Paul says to the Galatian church, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. It's not a gospel, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Very strong words there. Now, verse 9 says, and we have said before, so I say Again, now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed and beloved. This is where it starts. Who Christ is is foundational. So there's a special curse on people who deny the deity and the Godhead of Christ, and that's not something you play with. Now look at at the third verse of John 1. It's another thing you should know about the baby in the manger as John is carried along. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, this is his, if you're taking notes, pre-existence. It's a pretty simple statement, and he says it two different ways so that we can understand it by faith. Not real confusing, very clear. It's positive and negative, right? Positive, all things were made by him, and negative, without him, not anything was made that was made. So just positive, negative. He made everything, and nothing was made if it wasn't made through him. So just wants to make sure that you understand he's in all of it, okay? So that's his pre-existence. What's it mean? He, that just means he pre-existed everything. He pre-existed everything. Jesus made everything. People say, everything? Yeah, everything. Sometimes your kids will say when they're little, did Jesus make this car? You know. Well, no, Jesus didn't make the car, but he made everything that the car is made from. And he gave all the knowledge to everyone who was involved in its design. He owns all things, and it all belongs to him, and he made the world and everything that's in it. He has all that knowledge and all that ability, and he was there at the beginning of beginnings, face to face with God, and there wasn't anything that was made that wasn't made by him. Now, let's put it together. Everything came into being by the divine word of God, and Jesus is that word in a body, right? I mean, that's clear, the clear teaching that John wants to get across here. And the Bible teaches, it, and, and we believe that Jesus created the world out of nothing. And people will say, how could Jesus create a world that's so full of so much evil? And John says, listen, Jesus made it all, every bit of it. And the fact that it stained and wounded isn't his fault. And what's amazing to me, beloved, is how many in the church can't answer that simple question. Well, if God made everything, then why is it so full of evil? Well, because you have a choice to do evil, do you not? And there's sin in the world, and that has stained the world. And that's a very simple, straightforward answer, and it is absolutely the truth. This is why everything's messed up, 
Why? Because men make choices. And you can really illustrate that with their own life. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever told a lie? I mean, it's very, it's very easy to be, begin to group everyone in that, in that group, which is where we were as well, see? Romans 8 admits the whole world is groaning under the weight of sin, see? The world's in a struggle. You know, weeds grow in your garden and, you know, animals fight each other and the whole world is in one constant struggle and someday Jesus is going to come back, not only to redeem men, but to redeem the world. And if you're doubtful that, you know, a child in a manger made everything and owns it, just read Revelation and watch him come back and take it back because it's all his. And in fact, when he comes again and he takes it back and reigns, the lion and the lamb are going to do what? What are they going to do? They're going to lay down together, aren't they? The child and the serpent. See, Nature is marred by man's sin, but when Jesus returns, he's, he will redeem the whole world from that grip of sin because it's his and he's going to fix it. Now look at verse 4. In him was life. In him was life, and the life was light of men. And now John begins to let men know the purpose for his coming. So you think about the baby in the manger. We understand these very simple theological concepts that help us understand what was going on here. And what was the big deal with the angels coming and the star and all of that? Why was it such a big deal? This is why it was such a big deal. This is the purpose for his coming. In other words, this pictures Christ, the embodiment of life and light coming into the world and how darkness reacted to him. See, this is the incarnation that John Leslie spoke about several weeks ago. And in these verses, John reveals two things to us. Christ is the life of God and Christ is the light of God. And so it just makes sense then if he created everything, then it would have to be he that had these things. Right? I mean, that just makes sense. Very simple statement. If he made everything, obviously, in him was life. He made everything that's alive. In him was life. He must be the source of all that life. And Jesus is the source of life from, and you can just kind of grasp this, from a microorganism to a blue whale. And everything in between those things to an archangel. And everything between those things. So he made everything, and it's all under his control and all under his dominion. See, But this is interesting. John uses the word zoe for life, which is the word for spiritual life. And so that gives us another hint about the reason for his coming. It wasn't just to demonstrate that this child was the creator of all life on earth, which we understand that is a clear understanding from John's perspective and as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to know that he created all things and was before all things. But this word for spiritual life is important. Jesus is the source of spiritual life. And what do you mean by that? Well, if we define spiritual death, then spiritual life becomes clear as well. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So that describes every living human being who's ever come on into the world from the very beginning. Dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, you used to be there, you formerly walked there, according to the course of this world. So just like everybody else in the world, you walked in your trespasses and sins, dead. Also according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the unsaved man is dead in sin. So the biblical perspective of every human being who's come into the world is born into the world dead in sin. And spiritual death means that you can't respond to God. It's like a dead corpse, no response no matter what you do. You ask it a question, it's not going to be able to answer. 
The same with the person who doesn't know God. You can speak spiritual truth, but there is no response. See, but Christ comes, and the one thing and the one thing dead men need is life. So Christ comes and gives him life. And fifty-four times in John's Gospel, he talks about life. The world is populated by a bunch of dead people, people who don't know Christ or existing in death, and Christ came to give them life. Now they don't know they're existing in death. See. Most people in the world exist and think that everything's perfectly fine with their life, for the most part. They'd like to switch a few things around if they could and change their position, perhaps socioeconomically. But for the most part, they exist in the world and, and seem to be perfectly content to be where they are. But they don't know that they're dead in their trespasses and sin. Which is why when you present the gospel, you present what first? The bad news and then the good news. Okay? Because if somebody's perfectly content where they are, and you tell them, hey, God loves you. Well, great. I'm glad. i got a lot of people who love me. You start with, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead. You don't realize you're dead, but Scripture says you are spiritually dead. And untreated, you're going to be eternally dead. So, the world's populated by a bunch of dead people. People who don't know Christ are existing in death. Christ came to give them life. After all, they're not going to get it anywhere else, are they? I mean, he's the source. People are never going to find an answer to life in all the kinds of things that the world offers. Christ is the only source of life. And the only thing that ever made a dead man come to life was Jesus. So the baby in the manger, what child is this, is the source of life. When he grew up, what did he say? I am come that you might have life, right? You will not come down to me that you may have life. I am the way, the truth, and the... John says, he that hath the Son hath, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. So Jesus understood what his, what his job was. He came to seek and save those that were lost. He understood exactly what he was supposed to bring into the world, and that's precisely what he brought. And he said it over and over again. Life, life, life for dead people. Dead in the sin, insensitive to God, existing in deadness. And then Christ comes, and he can breathe into a spiritual life, and we come alive. In him was life, and then he brought that life into the world, and the next part of the verse says, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus brought that life into the world, and you know what? He, he was like light, and light just radiates from that source, and so did that life radiate, radiate out from uh, that source. And Jesus comes into the world. He's the light of life. And the life of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his spiritual life, scattered all over this world. And you know how many people it affected? John chapter 1 verse 9 says, we just read it a minute ago, there was the true light which coming into the world, what? Enlightens every man. That was the true light which enlightens how many men? Every man. Every man that comes in the world has fallen under the light spread about by spiritual life in Jesus Christ. It's what you do, though, with that light that matters, right? So Christ came in, and that life was like light, and it just spreads all over the place to light men's hearts. So how can I have that life? Well, that light in a dark place, in a dark world, how can I have that? Well, simple. I told you John's very simple, right? By believing. You say, well, what does that mean to believe? Well, 70 times, 70 times in John's Gospel, he talks about believing. You say, well, what do I have to believe? Well, it's very simple. First of all, you have to be convinced in your mind that Christ is the Son of God, that he is who he says he is, that he is who John has carried along to declare him to be. See. Secondly, you have to trust with your heart that everything he said is true. And thirdly, you commit your life to those two things. That's believing. It's not just saying, oh, yes, you know, uh, uh, he is declared to be the Son of God. It's not just saying, oh, yes, you know, I believe 
what he said. It's to do that and then commit your life to those beliefs. So that's what it means to believe. When, when you do that, you're going to stop dying and existing in death and start living life with a capital L. And it's, it's not only spiritual life here now, it's, it's got eternal quality, see? Because if you're a believer or an unbeliever, you will exist eternally. Scripture is very clear about that. You were made to exist eternally. You will exist eternally. Not in the current body that you have, but you will exist eternally. But if you're a believer, you're living eternal life right now. You've already begun the eternal life that he's talking about. Eternal life, you begin to understand that it's not necessarily the length of life. It is, but it's a quality of life. It's not just just eternal as in length. It is eternal in length, but you're living a quality of life. That's with the unbeliever. If you die in your sin, you will exist in eternal death. So again, an eternal life, but the quality drastically diminished. In fact, you'll exist under punishment from the Lord forever. That's a clear teaching from the Word of God. But Jesus' life was the light of men, according to John 1, 4. Character of light was to shine forth, and the life of Christ just came out of him. And 21 times in John's Gospel, he says, Christ is the light. And so it's important. It's a sad thing because in chapter 3, in verse 19, he says, men love what? Darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Christ comes with a life that shines like light and men love darkness. That's a sad thing, isn't it? And when you think about the condescension of, uh, condescension of Jesus Christ when he gave, but he gave up to give you life and the light of God and men may say no to him. John 1, 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He's the only life, he's the only light Without Christ, men are groping around in unmarked blackness. Eternal light, uh, night is ahead. And, and this is where they don't realize where they are. See, they just think it's everything's fine. They're seen with human eyes. They look around and think everything's going to be fine. And then I'm going to go to my grave and die. But they don't realize they're walking in darkness. And, and this light has come. And when Jesus comes into that life, you know, the time of guessing and groping is over. And the days of doubt and the days of uncertainty are done. And the path of darkness becomes light and the way becomes clear throughout all eternity. Because when you're taken from the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of his beloved son, there's a huge difference both in, in, in perspective and in the philosophy of life. Right? Everything changes because you understand for the first time how the world was made, who made it, who we're going to answer to, and what's in store for the future. That's the light that just spreads out all over the place. And men can hear that and respond negatively to it. It doesn't excuse them from this, the consequences of that decision. It just gives them what they ask for. And as we've said many times, everybody gets what they want. Not everybody likes what they get. So, Jesus comes in. Days of doubt and uncertainty are gone. Jesus Christ is life and light. It's light in a dark world. It's life to a dead soul. If you're existing in the deadness and blackness of night, Jesus Christ could turn the eternal light on and give life to your soul. And that's, a, that's the wonder of what child is this. See. But it's a dark world, isn't it? And, and the prince of darkness rules the world. And, and who's the prince of darkness? It's Satan. And the demons of darkness are his cohorts, and men love the darkness, and they eat it up because their deeds are evil. Then this last verse for this, this uh, Sunday before Christmas is verse 5. Look there if you would. The light shines in the darkness... And the darkness did not comprehend it. Because listen, if you've got a dirty life, you're not going to 
want to walk in a spotlight and display it. Instead, you're going to love the corners and the places where it's dark, and the baby in the manger is the light that comes into the world and shines in the middle of all that darkness. And every place where there is the life of Jesus Christ, whether it was in Jesus himself when he was living on earth or whether it's in you, right in your neighborhood, there's a light shining in darkness. See, That's a marvelous thing about that, see? That light now comes out of you. But most of all here, it's referring to Christ. came into the world, and there was a light, and you know, the darkness tried everything it could to get rid of that light, didn't it? I mean, Satan took Jesus in his temptation. Maybe he can derail him from the cross if he causes him to sin, right? So there's immediately an attack on that, on Christ, and then Satan tried every way he could, and finally Satan figured, you know, maybe I can get in on a murder and make it deadly enough that he won't come back, and Satan tried every possible way to turn the light out. Did he do it? No. He didn't. That's what the end of verse 5 says. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That is the verb katalambano, to, to seize upon or take possession of, as in to control. We think it maybe didn't understand it, but the idea, though, in the Greek is that it didn't take possession of it. So the darkness couldn't do that. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't take possession of it. Jesus is the light, and the darkness tries and struggles, and all the darkness of hell can't turn the light out. So the child in the manger came, turned on the light. It may not seem very bright right now. Even now the light is shining in the lives of many of you. Satan hates it. He fights it. But he can't turn it out. One of the reasons why, as we studied 2 Corinthians 6, we understand the difficult times and, and incongruity of, of living uh, life for Christ in the ministry is, is found uh, directly related to the fact that you're light and men hate the light. And they love darkness more than light. If you've got unsaved relatives, you know how much men hate the light. One of these days, though, perhaps not very far from now, light is going to come back in all its blaze of its glory. And we look forward to that time. Kind of in a sweetness because we know that the Lord always keeps his word. And then a lot like the bitterness of the scroll that many of the prophets were asked to eat. It's sweet when it goes in your mouth because it's God's word and we know it's going to be fulfilled exactly like he said. And it's bitter when it goes in. Why? Because that means the death of many, many people. It means cast forever in hell. Many people that you know. So, child in the manger, what child is this? Well, in the beginning, back before the heavens and the earth were created, his, he already existed from eternity past. He existed. He was in the beginning of beginnings. He was not created. He never began. He always was. Simple words, complex to understand. Saying to the Jews, Jesus is the embodiment of all God was for you in the Old Testament, he says to the Greeks and everyone else, Jesus is the answer to what you're looking for. And in eternity past, he was face to face with God. And from the very beginning, he is the living word and he alone is the perfect revelation of God. And there is no other. It is Christ and Christ only. He's God in a body. All that God is, is Christ. All things were made by him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. The child made everything, everything. This is the child in the manger. What child is this? Child is life for dead people. Dead in sin, insensitive to God, existing in deadness, looking forward untreated to an eternity in death. He came to short-circuit that whole process. 
He can breathe life into us, spiritual life, and become alive. He was like a light. As light radiates out from its source, so did life radiate out from that source, Jesus. And he is that light, and the darkness tries to struggle, and, and all the darkness of hell tries to turn it out and can't. And I trust that divine light of Christ is a reality for you today. And I trust that the light of God and the person of Christ has lit your heart for all eternity. That that is your reality. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Jesus Christ is the incarnate God in a body. It's life and light. No question about that in John's understanding as he carried along by the Holy Spirit. The only question is, what are you going to do about that? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Move on to the rest of our day today. Lord, we thank you again for an opportunity to worship together. We thank you for this season where we're able to draw our attention again to what child this is, what a marvelous plan it is, how it must have shocked all the angels to understand you were going to have your son co-equal with you, face-to-face -face with you before the beginning of beginnings, and take on human flesh and live among us and let us spit on him and blaspheme him and crucify him. And yet that's precisely your plan because there was no other way for you to redeem us. Apart from the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin, and there was no one worthy to be killed for anyone's sin besides their own. So the perfect one had to come. And Lord, we're so grateful for that. And we're grateful for the stories out of Matthew and Luke, and we're grateful for the story out of John, which just takes us outside of time and shows us why it was so significant and why the host of uh, angels came and declared this marvelous thing. And so, Father, as we think about all of this, uh, we're so grateful if we know your Son as our Savior that we could respond in such a way uh, in joy, in security, knowing that even though the world's a dark place, you, the light has emanated from your Son, Jesus. It's going to come back in its all, its full glory. In the meantime, it comes out from us. And I pray that we'll be about the faithful minister, ministering of the gospel of reconciliation as an ambassador. And for those who don't know your son today, who've not come into that right relationship, Lord, I pray today is the day of salvation. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Even your heart, God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. Very simple statements from the word. It's all that you are from the seed of your being, confess that Jesus is who he said he is. He came for the reason he said he came, and he accomplished all that he said he was going to do. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, which made him a sufficient payment for your sin, and you have to come then and confess your sin and cast it on him. He's already paid that price. You have to admit you're a sinner, repent of that sin, confess all of that to the Lord, and ask for forgiveness, and he is gracious to forgive. Now is the time, the accepted time of salvation. So today, make that most wonderful commitment. Lord, thank you today for these folks whom we get to minister with while we're here on earth. I pray that you bless the work of our hands, of our mouth, of our efforts, of our ministry, for souls in the kingdom, for discipled people, for believers ready and equipped to handle whatever the world brings. Supposed to bring encouragement to one another, meet one another's needs, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another. As we get ready to enter into a new year, we look forward to doing that more together. 
pray that you'll expand our ministry as you see fit. Show us where we can minister in this culture better. And all these things help us to walk with you and be in your word each day. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.